I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Glad you said Joe Dwayne because I would have said uh, Joden. <laughs> yeah, you would have. <laughs> yeah, you would have. I most certainly would have. Um, uh, so, so happy to be sitting down with Sebastian Joe Dwayne. Uh, Sebastian, you are a law professor at McGill University, um, but you're also the founding director of the Disability Inclusive Climate Action Research Program. And uh, on top of that, you also are pretty familiar with living with disability because you yourself have been diagnosed with uh, MS. Um, man, th- I feel like this has been such a, a long time coming, us, us trying to set up this recording and, and, and get into the swing of things. And uh, due to the world that we live in with COVID and, and everything, um, we had to kind of push the recording back a little further than, than we originally anticipated. But I, I totally forget how I was put onto the work that you do. I believe I had read an article somewhere and and from that article, uh, kind of reached out to to you and your colleagues to see if you would be willing to come on the show. But um, uh, just take a moment to to introduce yourself to our our listeners and and maybe give us a, a bit of a, a rundown on what uh, the Disability Inclusive Climate Action Research Program is all about before we we talk about your MS. Right. So uh, I've been a, a law professor at McGill since twenty fourteen. Um, I am, and in the last, uh, and I've been working on human rights and climate change for 15 years, basically, uh, in all sorts of contexts. So looking at how climate change affected, uh, indigenous peoples and their rights. And, uh, and now most recently, uh, in the last, um, two years have been focusing on an issue that's received a lot less attention, um, which is the impacts of climate change on people with disabilities, although that that's growing. Uh, in, in terms of attention and I guess in terms of impact, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what does the program do? Well, uh, basically, we do sort of legal and policy research or looking at what countries are or aren't doing in relation to disability and climate change. We also have uh, empirical research projects where we want to sort of actually see how people with disabilities are affected and like what their coping strategies are. Uh, but those have mostly been uh, delayed due to the pandemic. Uh, and then the last component of what we do is sort of um, what we call sort of co-production, uh, co-advocacy with uh, people with disabilities. So uh, we have a podcast that we did last year of people with disabilities, like a series of people with disabilities involved in climate change. Um, we uh, have been active in uh, working with large international uh, organizations of people with disabilities on this issue. And uh, you probably heard from me because, uh, or about me because um, some of this work got picked up by the BBC 
and uh and then i ended up doing um some interviews in that context um, that was it yeah, yeah for sure I, i'm 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 curious, Sebastian. I think a lot of people are familiar with the ways um, that climate change is affecting the world in general. Um, but I'm curious, what are some of the big ways that climate change specifically affects people living with disabilities? Right. So first of all, uh, climate change has all sorts of impacts for people. And uh, if you have a disability, um, you will be uh, more affected by sort of the impacts that affect everyone. And the question is, interesting question is, why is that? Is it because of your sort of underlying impairment or is it because the way society is organized because they're a failure to ensure your, your resilience? So, I mean, as a human rights lawyer, I would argue that it's the latter most of the time. Um, but I can give you a concrete example. Mm -hmm. uh, in Montreal, there was a heat wave in uh, July 2018, so 61 people died in this heat wave, and a quarter of the people who died uh, were people who were living with schizophrenia. Wow. So that's 500 times their share of the population in Quebec. Whoa. So why? Why would that be the case? So uh, it turns out that if you do have schizophrenia, you are often taking a kind of medication that makes you more sensitive to heat. Mm. So there is a little bit of an you know, underlying impairment thing happening there. But uh, mostly uh, what we can say is that uh, many people who live with schizophrenia um, live in poverty, have, uh, you don't have a big social network. Uh, they might live alone. So they might not have access to the community and the resources to be resilient in the context of the heat wave. And then finally, I think we can blame the government in the sense that uh, there are heat wave plans to protect people uh, during heat waves, and there was nothing in place to protect people with this particular uh, condition. So mm -hmm. lack of planning, lack of ability to reach those those uh, people in that in that community. Mm -hmm. Do you do you think something that just popped into my head there as you were saying that was in the in the context of in the context of the last two years and the pandemic and the way that we have the way that we have you know, sometimes successfully and sometimes not successfully been able to sort of um, get the importance across. I think that was certainly the case with vaccines and definitely with Nova Scotia of like, there are certain people that need this sooner than others. And we need to focus on that. And like in the, in the way that the vaccines got rolled out, that was a part of that. Is there, is there, um, you know, when you talk about this, this heat wave plan that's in place, but lacks the, you know, sort of the sections that outline, you know, this is the general part of this. And then this is how we might react to certain sections of the populations that are more vulnerable or more at risk because of, you know, X, Y, Z factors, disability being one of those. Do you think that the way that we've gone about some of the pandemic in terms of trying to put priority on certain groups of people, again, successfully sometimes and not so successfully sometimes, um, might be a silver lining in integrating those things into... Uh, into plans such as like a heat wave plan for, for Montreal? I mean, that would be an optimistic uh, take in terms of what could come out of this. Uh, <laughs> as someone who's immunocompromised, uh, I've not, and, you know, maybe just the particular context of Quebec, I've not been impressed by uh, how they've gone about, you know, issues around vaccines or, or now, um, or the monoclonal antibodies. I don't know if you are familiar with those. Yeah. Um, 
you know, basically, uh, I, I, someone who I, I happen to know that in the UK, um, someone who's on my medication uh, who got who would get COVID would get um, under the UK system would get access to these monoclonal antibodies within five days. They have a whole system set up. And uh, <laughs> when I got COVID in September, I uh, I reached out to sort of uh, MS clinic about this, and they were like, uh, "We don't know what you're talking about." what treatment? And I was like, yeah, this treatment approved in June by Health Canada. And they're like, oh, uh, yeah, they haven't figured out a way to actually administer this treatment. So like, <laughs> there's a drug, now it doesn't work against Omicron, but it works against Delta. There's a drug that would actually prevent you from being hospitalized. Uh, and uh, basically, you could only get it if you were hospitalized right, in Canada. Yeah, right. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. That's sorry. That's a very... Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm that's a very specific example of of a failure there. But uh, to answer your yeah. bigger question, uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's all sort like there's all sorts of I think hopefully um, things that have ha innovations that have happened uh, in the context of this pandemic and realizations that people may have had about differential sort of vulnerabilities that you would think would feed into other policy areas. I mean, just the fact that federally. There was a committee of people with disabilities that were consulted, uh, you know, then it raises the question, okay, so why not have that for climate change? Um, so yeah, for sure, uh, you would imagine that there would be hopefully something that would be gained, but I don't think it's going to be automatic. I think it's going to take uh, people like me, researchers, it's going to take activists, people in the community, it's going to take journalists to actually make those links so that governments actually follow through on what they should have learned from all of this. I guess another question too would be is after the heat wave in 2018 in Montreal and the, this staggering statistic comes out that 500 times the general population um, amount of people living with schizophrenia are affected negatively by this heat wave or, or die from this heat wave. Was there anything that was learned from that that was changed or implemented after that event? Not that I can tell. Not not in Quebec, not in Montreal, and not in other parts of Canada. Wow. Um, we don't have the data yet about the heat wave in BC, which killed more people, like 350 people. So I don't know yet whether you know people with disabilities were disproportionately overrepresented, but I suspect it's the case. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I haven't seen that. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. Look, if you look federally, we have a national climate adaptation sort of plan. So it's like a whole plan about how Canada should adapt to climate change. And in this plan, they recognize that indigenous peoples and women are more affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. And there's resources to study that and there's resources to make inter, you know, interventions around that, but there's nothing for people with disabilities. It's just, it's just a completely new area for a lot of people to think about. Yeah, the uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm now I so I found the uh, the article that actually like like spurred this this interest in having you on the show, which um, it reminded me that um, this all came about when the the Israeli minister Karin El Harar um, uh, made headlines when when it when it came out that. Um, she couldn't actually attend the COP26 summit right. uh, because it wasn't wheelchair accessible, which is, which is um, so wild. Um, and, and that, that was in that article itself is, is where you were, uh, you were featured. Um, this, it reminds me of conversations that we've had on the show about disability um, and accessibility a number of times now where, 
you know, there, there's this, there's this, well, at least what we've come to learn is that when, when things are made more accessible for folks who live with disabilities, um, we oftentimes see people who do not live with disabilities benefit from those, those things that are incorporated into the world. So like the, um, the, uh, I forget the name of it, but like those, those little like off ramps on the sidewalks. Yeah. Um, or, you know, um, uh, like the stop the gap movement in Toronto to like reduce that gap between, um, between, you know, shops on the, on the sidewalk. Um, are, are there examples of things that, that have not been implemented that could be implemented when it comes to how we deal with climate change that would benefit folks with disabilities, but in turn also be just as beneficial to, to everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the climate, uh, on the climate mitigation side. So like F things we do to reduce carbon emissions um, on that side. Well, first of all, if we're, developing mass transit systems we should make these systems accessible to people who have sort of mobility impairments uh, or sensory impairments and when you make your you know subway system accessible then you have older people who can use it uh, who don't identify usually as having a disability people you know parents that have strollers the person who's like riding their bike to work mm -hmm. and maybe they need to take the their their bike on the subway home because it's raining or something so yeah, just making it easier to use these services by making them more accessible. Um, and on the adaptation side, right? So things we need to do to make sure people are, survive uh, and thrive in a, a world that's affected by climate change. Um, you know, again, uh, the more sort of like warning systems, like let's say there's going to be a cyclone or, or a heat wave, I mean, that's more relevant for, for Canada. Uh, how do you reach as many people as possible? To tell them that this is happening and that uh again is something you need to do you need to reach people in all sorts of ways um also like a lot even within your building you know alarm systems that are accessible uh having um having uh evacuation vehicles that are accessible so these are all examples of things I, i'm basically telling you things where that this happens hasn't happened so like in i can give you the counter examples if you want but it, we have a bunch of uh especially in the United States, um, situations where there were hurricanes and Hurricane Katrina, uh, of course, you may all remember, um, where there was nothing in place, nothing in place to save people. People died in the sort of institutions that they were uh, living in uh, from the flooding. And the vehicles, escape vehicles, were not wheelchair accessible. Uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York in 20. The shelters were not wheel. Most of the sh hurricane shelters were not wheelchair accessible. Wow. So, yeah. as as a result from those sort of natural disasters, it, it is what looking back at the data now, do we see that disproportionately people with disabilities were negatively affected? Yeah, I mean, there isn't a systematic study uh, looking at all climate impacts. This is actually something we want to do with some of our partners, but for specific uh types of impacts there is some good data so heat waves actually is one where there's good data and um and cyclones is another so yeah um disproportionate rates of people with disabilities that die in these kinds of climate uh, related impacts in terms of advocacy and trying to change this 
Um, I imagine that I, I like to think that the majority of people that you bring this idea forward to would be pretty ex- accepting and understanding of it. So, um, and I don't know if this is a naive way to look at the world, but I feel like for the most part, I believe that people are inherently good. So if you say, hey, people with disabilities are disproportionately affected by um, climate change, and you can show them some data to validate that, that they would go, yeah, that's that's true. What can we do about it? But it's, I think it's like the what can we do about it part that seems like it's hard to gain traction with. Is that, have you found that it's difficult to move things forward in terms of like the politics of change and um especially from your your perspective as a law professor like is it hard to is that where the resistance is so i want to say first of all that uh when i first started talking about how i was going to work on this with people and i'd be like i go to the climate negotiations and i'd be like hey i'm working on this building climate change people would be like what do you mean i don't understand so (laughs) There was just like, even by people who are climate activists, there's just like a lack of understanding about disability. The same that we find in all of society, we will mm-hmm. find in the community of people involved in climate change. Um, so just couldn't really understand like how, how people would be affected differently. Um, and I think in the environmental movement, I mean, there is a history of ableism. Um, and, you know, you see it, I give these examples sometimes, I'll, I'll have like a, like a poster and it'll say, uh, you know, uh, save the planet, uh, walk, uh, or take the bus or ride a bike. And I will always be like, not everyone can walk. Um, not everyone can take the bus or the subway if it's inaccessible. And, you know, maybe instead of having a stand up bike, we could have a recumbent bike sometimes as an image in these things. So there's, you know, think of like the big climate marches, like it's like the most inaccessible thing you can imagine. Five hundred thousand <laughs> yeah. people stuffed it together in streets, like, and then walking for like two, three hours. Um, there's lots of people who weren't going to be able to join that kind of thing. So, um, so I think that there is just a, a lack of understanding, uh, like even just base level. Like, I mean, you know, maybe I should just tell people, hey, listen to the Sick Boy podcast. Like, just sample ten episodes randomly, and maybe you'll have a better <laughs> sense of you know life with the disability and how you might be affected differently by stuff Mm -hmm. um so so yeah so there's that uh i think the other thing i've noticed um yeah i mean i have no i've not encountered anyone who was like oh we shouldn't do everything we can to save people with disabilities in in disasters however what i have encountered is uh when i've said that you know basically it you know any mass transit uh, system or any sort of measure to uh, combat climate change should be accessible and should be we should think about how it might negatively affect people with disabilities i've had pushback from people who have been like oh it would cost too much money to make the subway system accessible and i'll always pause and i'll say so you're an environmentalist but you're arguing for less money for the mass transit system that doesn't make sense and it really reflects your your biases right like who who matters and who doesn't matter Mm. who in this in this conversation do you get a sense that, <clears throat> do you get a sense that, um, I mean, fuck, we've, we've shit the bed so hard as like human species with climate change in general, in terms of like, you know, allowing it to get to the place where it where, very well potentially will wipe us out yeah, in, like the, where, in the yeah, coming like decade. Yeah. Where there's like a very reasonable <laughs> argument to be made that, you know, 
we we could possibly be past the point of no return and you know so that, that's that's a that's that's an argument that could be made so is there do you get the sense that when you when you when you bring the topic forward of of doing um of doing work specifically for people with um disabilities and how climate change will affect them that there's almost like a um like a uh like a, a like a dejected sigh because the, because the because it's kind of like oh man we are doing such a poor job already like in every in every way shape or form that that and I'm saying this from like the perspective of you know somebody who's who maybe involved in policy or funding or something like that that they feel like <clears throat> that it's like another that they're like holy shit we have to like think we this now we have to think about another layer of something that we already do really a really poor job at. Like we know this is so bad <laughs> and oh fuck, it's you even know. worse than we thought. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, someone yeah. goes, Oh yeah. Remember yeah. these people? Yeah. And they're like, fuck, we're already doing such a bad job of not when like outside of not, ha- of not thinking about that. Do you know, do you know, do you know what I mean? Right. What, one other group to worry about. Right. And right. I guess, that is kind of the, the history of the field of climate change. Like it starts off and it's scientists and economists. And eventually a bunch of people are like, hey, like women are affected differently. And hey, indigenous peoples are affected differently. And it took them, like the climate regime in the UN, like it took them in, that, in both cases, like 10 years until they like created mechanisms to like, deal with the differential vulnerability of women and indigenous peoples and create mechanisms to involve them. Mm-hmm. So it took, it was a long time for on our side, we have uh, the benefit of those precedents. So, um, you know, basically uh, uh, I've had conversations with sort of policymakers and negotiations and I'll be like, uh, you know, in the UN system and elsewhere, there's like a, representation of people with disabilities there isn't in climate change that's strange right and they'll be like you're right it is strange so you know yeah. we'll yeah. say there's a constituency for women and indigenous peoples but uh you know people with disabilities are 15 percent of the world population and they have special um uh, i mean they're disproportionately affected and they should also be involved so 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 far I mean, maybe uh i i'm sure the possibility of yet yet another group to 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 involve is something that might generate some hesitation and resistance, but the problem is that it's just so obvious. Um, yeah. and, and I have to tell you, like when I first was having first conversations about how we should like move this issue forward or whatever, I, yeah, I remember people being like, oh my God, it's gonna be hard. You're not gonna have a lot of success. <clears throat> and well, I'm not saying success, not just me, but like there's a bunch of uh, organizations that are actually involved in leading this advocacy that I've worked with. It's going pretty fast, actually. Like we went from last year in the climate negotiations or two years ago, basically uh, I launched this like little report on disability and climate change. And then we had a year of side events in different international venues. And then in August, they were like, uh, oh, we'll, we'll help you. We'll create a caucus for you. And someone who's disability rights movement with me for uh, who works with me and who's been in the disability rights movement for decades, she she was like, oh, I've never seen things move so fast. So mm-hmm. I think that there's just sort of a realization of that things, this needs to get done. And um, in fact, just to be clear, it is actually a legal obligation of 
states to do this under the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So that mm-hmm. might also make a, a difference as well. Do you do you ever um, do, do do you ever talk to people in the? I'm, I'm, maybe it's this is from the outsider looking in. This sounds kind of silly, but uh, there's no shortage of silly people in the world. So um, do you ever get the sense that you talk to someone like? No, this is a very this is such a complex issue. And like you, the way that you laid that out when you started your response there, like really struck me in the way that it's like, yeah, this started with scientists and it was like emissions are going out, like stop the emissions, stop the problem. And it's like, from that perspective, it, we, it, it's like very simple. And then as you start to layer in like people and how, uh, how it becomes very, very complex, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once you start layering on, is there, do you ever have a conversation with somebody Who's just like, listen, let's just focus on making electric cars, the uh, every car on the road. And then, and then that, and then that's going to be like some like overly simplest, somebody who's like married to like the simple idea of, of, uh, of changing climate change through like, yeah, something like electric cars or something, you know? Yeah. They're called economists and, uh, they, they, uh, they, they are, yeah, they're interested in the most efficient way to reduce emissions and they, you know, so they don't necessarily, it's not that they don't personally care, but at least in their work, right. it's not a big focus for them to think about, like, what are the inequities in how, in, you know, any, in any kind of transition, right? Yeah. Like something that I'm, that we're going to try to do next year is like, uh, like car sharing is a great concept, right? Like, I think we need more car sharing to get fewer cars off the road. How many car sharing programs in how many cities in Canada have like meet accessibility requirements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answer to that question. No one's done that study. I want to do it, but it's a question and I don't think anyone's thought about it. I don't, you know, I would so, hypothesize that it's very low. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I can't, yeah. I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen a minivan parked in a zip car parking lot. Yeah. That seems like it has a wheelchair accessible door yeah. attached to it. You know, yeah. I, like one thing that that and and sort of in line with what we're talking about here is the like the the impact of of measures to combat climate change and and how that affects people with dis- disabilities um the the example that that I can think of is is you know there's this simple notion that if we just ban plastic straws that that will be great for everyone like who's going to suffer from us just um, getting rid of all plastic straws so that no turtles have to uh, have a plastic straw pulled out of their nostril. I was thinking specifically that's what it's yeah. really about. It's um, about the turtles. <laughs> and, and and but but that you know that set on paper that sounds great. Yeah, sure. Ban pl- plastic straws, easy peasy. Um, but for people who uh, live with certain types of disabilities, like they they require plastic straws in order to in order to drink, in order to you know to. Whereas like a, 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 a steel or a metal straw or paper straws don't don't actually are, are either potentially hazardous or just don't fucking work for the person that needs it. Um, are there other examples of, of how like of these impacts of 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 reducing climate change for and, and how that impacts people living with disabilities? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is any type of measure that um seeks to discourage driving which again you know so whether it's like through a carbon tax uh, 
on your vehicle or like in, you know, in some cities in Europe, like if you drive your vehicle downtown, you have to pay more or banning cars from areas. Like I, I say this as someone who, you know, basically uses mass transit and, uh, and cycles everywhere when I'm in the city. But um, so I, you know, I love the idea of promoting alternatives to, to, to the automobile, but some people need to drive. Like some people need to drive. And I've had this experience myself with my MS. Like a few years ago, I had to drive for like a year. I just couldn't, I was too fatigued. I couldn't handle the, you know, I had a handicapped parking spot at, at the university. And that was actually really, um, so, you know, I think part of this is also having empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I, cause I totally was the person who were like, you know, when I was 25 riding my bike, looking at people in their cars and being like those fuckers man yeah. they're ruining they're ruining everything <laughs> you know they're selfish and whatever now when i ride my bike uh, along the along people who are like i they're actually stuck in traffic in this part of montreal and i'm like zipping by and i'm happy on my bike i feel bad for them i'm like oh i'm so sorry that like possibly you need to drive for whatever reason or maybe your life is structured in a way where you need to drive or there's no so like i've taken a completely different view on it but anyway i think that you know anything that you're gonna anytime you're gonna ban something like transportation or like forms of transportation without thinking about is my city does my city offer accessible mass transit mm. do i have you know or maybe there could be some kind of like opt-out or some kind of rebate like a tax credit rebate for people who for documented medical reasons need to drive. Um, I was just thinking that exact, as you were, as you were talking about that, I was going, Oh, there should be some time. But then I was, but then, then when that thought process went like one degree further, I thought of like how that again layers on another degree of complexity in the sense that, in the sense that then you have, again, because, you know, disabilities and impairments are so wide ranging. Then when you require that person now that person is like required to like do this extra thing to justify their the, their need and you know is it ex and and then like and then is the question is asked is, is that process accessible yeah. to go through that like you know some some government things might be online forms which have their <laughs> possible degree of inaccessibility or you have to go to the place which is also like and then the, the it, it it's it's so it just strikes me the complexity of, I think of it's about creating, solving these issues, creating options, right? Right. Like my um, uh, Sebastian, for 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 um, to give you some context, my uncle was uh, uh, homeless and in and out of like the shelter system, and it was really hard for him. To, like he can't read or he couldn't read, so filling out paperwork was there was no chance that he would be able to do that and even though there were sometimes services that would have been available he didn't know about them so just they were just inherently inaccessible in themselves and so it's hard because like sometimes there can be solutions but there you're never going to find a solution that works for everybody and every solution like could pose a new problem but it shouldn't prevent you from trying to find right. solutions yeah, too yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> right. well i mean as we're as we're talking it occurs to me if you have the if you have the hand parking sticker i mean there's already a process set up to get that right um, yeah it should probably have some kind of effect on you know these kind of things yeah. it's so it's something that something that um i've i've tried when i can remember to uh something that i've tried to live my life by for the last few years since i heard somebody say this i can't remember who it was but it was something along the lines of like everything that you do 
everything that you could implement, especially when it impacts not just you, but, you know, like a broader community, like government decisions, policy decisions is like, it's very, very challenging to make something 5% better, but it's remarkably easy to make things like 15% worse. And so whenever you're considering like what you should do, like just the, the, the investment of time in analyzing the potential outcomes and in the unintended consequences, because that mm-hmm. reminds me of when you, what you brought up with the straw, like mm-hmm. looks good on paper. And then all of a sudden now you've caused, you know, possibly like really like a lot of harm to a group of people that mm-hmm. were like, this was, this was a daily, this is one of the most like top 10 important, most important things mm-hmm. in my daily life. That yeah. I it sh- can't it shouldn't, it shouldn't deter, like I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think that's a really important thing to, consider but it shouldn't discourage innovation it should just reinforce the importance of like like really considering how it yeah. impacts marginalized yeah people in particular yeah what what are like what is the role that people with disabilities um should and and can play when it comes to addressing climate change yeah so you know i was talking about the uh environmental and climate people not knowing much about disability and um, on the other side, what I've noticed definitely is the first time I reached out to groups, they right away understood the link between um, uh, between sort of climate change and like emergency disaster risk readiness. And that's where most of the people who are active on this issue, you know, globally on climate change, are, we're already working on disaster reduction for people with disabilities. Um, but the other side of the coin, like how sort of you know activities of everyday life, how those might be affected by climate policy and that kind of thing, wasn't something that came naturally to people. Um, but I think actually uh, one of the ways to start is, um, and I would argue basically, like if you're already someone who's um, advocating for your mass transit system to be accessible, then you're a climate activist. You might not think of yourself in those terms, but you're a climate activist. And if you're someone who is advocating in your your own life for the right to be able to work from home uh, or, or, you know, uh, in some cases, study from home, um, so like teleworking, I mean, you are a climate activist. I mean, you are reducing the amount of energy that it takes, you know, to move you somewhere for you to be able to work. So I, I think that people should, um, yeah, realize that in their everyday lives as people with disabilities are already, uh, you know, basically advocating for disability rights and accessibility and that actually can fulfill the the, um, climate agenda. And I think um, more broadly, uh, uh, you know, it's not the case that that, uh, people working on climate change are going to like basically out of the blue be like, oh my God, we need to invite people with disabilities to this conversation. It's the thing where people with disabilities are just going to have to show up mm. and start getting into the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's, we're still at the stage basically of we need to show up and go to these, you know, go to that like local climate justice meeting. And maybe the first time it's held in a bar that's inaccessible and you complain about that and you ask for it to be changed. You know, I mean, it's not going to be a pleasant experience to sort of join a community of people who may not have been thinking about this. Um, having having said that, I, I've now been in touch with so many people who have disabilities, who work on climate change. And so it's like a growing sort of community um, because like anyone else, we care about the future of the planet and realize that we will, 
you know, be uh, affected by uh, um, all sorts of climate impacts. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I like to think that uh, people who care about climate change are pretty uh, welcoming people. So if, if you showed up, if, you, if you're someone with a disability and you show up and, and ask for them to, you know, make it more accessible, I'd like to think that they would be down to help do that. But, you know, knowing that there's fucking yeah, idiots on this planet. I mean, <laughs> you know, like back to that, uh, the Israeli minister not not even being able to attend the, the yeah, COP26 meeting. Like That's a major oversight. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if the next one will be uh, wheelchair accessible or not. Oh, my God. What, what it, yeah. yeah. What is that expression? Like people thank you for telling them things they already know, but they can be kind of upset oh, yeah. when you point out something they'd never thought of because it yeah. makes them feel bad about their yeah you know totally. limitations yeah. That's yeah. Really I, i'm 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 super curious to know sebastian how you like how your uh ms diagnosis sort of shaped your decision to work on the disability and and climate change i'm guessing that you know climate change was something that you've been focused on for a long time and then and and ms was something that came after the fact and uh Correct me if I'm wrong, but if that is the case, um, how did that how did that shape the way that you went about focusing on on climate change? Yeah, so I've been working on climate change basically my whole adult life, and um, and then in 2015, uh, my first year as a professor at McGill, um, I was diagnosed with with MS, relapsing MS. At um, actually, it was my first relapse they call it a relapse even if it's your first attack but my first relapse was uh was quite aggressive so i was quite lucky because i was diagnosed right away in the emergency room and you know some people it takes them years to get a diagnosis and uh i remember they told me the diagnosis and i remember i told my wife i was like um i I don't know i had this like moment of clarity where i was like oh okay like i have no idea i had no idea what it really meant you know to live with ms but I had this moment where I was like, okay, so I guess I'm going to, I'm going to end up working on this stuff. Like I'm going to work on disability and healthcare. And, uh, and I told my wife right away, I was like, this is going to be a beautiful challenge and I'm going to embrace this and whatever. Um, by the way, not, not all of the subsequent months were, were me, you know, being that attitude. There were low moments too. (laughs) Uh, yeah. But yeah, so I had this whole idea that I was going to basically, you know, I ended up working on, on this. And uh, anyway, then the summer comes along and I discover that um, like 65% of people with MS, I'm super sensitive to heat. Um, actually, I'm not anymore because I've had like amazing treatments that have basically taken most of my symptoms away. But at this first, in the initial symptom, uh, summer, I realized that I, I was super tired walking outside and, you know, hot, humid Montreal summer. And I would get these like little um, tiny electric shocks on the back of my head wow. uh, and my neck. 
Yeah, actually, it turns out that before they had MRI machines, the way they would diagnose people with MS was they'd put you in a hot bath and see how huh. you'd react. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So Montreal in July is a hot bath, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so all of a sudden, like this world that I, you know, I was inhabiting and like it just kind of shrunk because I kind of like I read this book about like a doctor who had MS and she was like in North Carolina and she was like, I spend my summers inside the air conditioning room and I watch my daughter playing through the window. And I was like, two things that came to mind. One was, uh, fuck that. Like, I'm going to find some kind of solution to this problem because I have a daughter and I, you know. And the second thing was, oh, wait, like, so I'm more affected by this problem that I've been working on all, the, all these years <laughs> yeah. and I never thought of. And at the time, um, I had just uh, just put together a book with a bunch of uh, climate uh, scholars and activists from around the world. And it was about human rights and climate change. And we had a chapter on women and a chapter on indigenous peoples. We had a chapter on older people. Uh, and there was just no chapter on people with disabilities. Like no wow. one in this community had thought of it. So it was kind of like, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to have to work on this. Like I have no choice. Like I have to, to do this. So yeah, that's kind of how... Uh, I mean, I still have this hope to eventually, you know, do stuff around health and research and, and, uh, and my, my, um, I've started doing stuff around COVID and disability, but uh, in the end, you know, I kind of stumbled on this huge gap in terms of research and, uh, you know, had to, had to work on it because mm. no one else was working on it at the time. It's, kind of, it's, it's interesting in the way that like there are, and, the, and this happens every single time that we talk about every time that we talk about disability and, and the wide range of ways that it can affect a person's life and, and accessibility and the way that we've you know built uh, the infrastructure of the world, like there never ceases to be a conversation that we have about that where you, where as somebody who doesn't face those problems, at least doesn't face those problems on a day to day basis, uh, just here having the conversation going, wow, I've never thought of that. I've never thought of that. And now that I, have thought of that it changes the way that i think you know it just changes it it you know it's like there's just there was like this you know this invisible piece of the puzzle that now sort of like reveals itself and you still don't really know exactly how how it fits but you know that it's there and now you need to start trying to make you know make it fit which is the thing is that's kind of crazy is that that puzzle is sort of the same across a number of different areas. I should say and that the, by invisible, the, I also just mean yeah. like invisible to the individual, not, and, not as a as right. whole. But like the the interesting thing is that it feels like a lot of time, and like what we've heard a lot of disability advocates say is that like it's crazy how often people forget that that piece of the puzzle exists. And I feel like one of the things that I'm hearing you say, Sebastian, is that like really we just need to be including people with disabilities specifically in this conversation at the climate change table. Um, but really when it comes to any policy that we're making all tables, they, their voices need to be mm. included. Yeah. 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 Well, and I would say, you know, I think something else that I've learned from this experience and apart from, I already mentioned the sort of empathy part of this and like trying to see, you know, as I said, I, I had, to, I had some difficulty walking and I had lots of fatigue in the early uh, first two years there and I had to drive basically and that was like a really it was really hard for me my like identity as someone who cared about the environment and was a cyclist and you know walked everywhere it was really hard for me to accept that I had to drive um, 
but yeah, it's really helpful to me now to sort of like, I don't rush to judgment about people's behaviors. Um, in, you know, of anything. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing. And then, um, the other is at least, you know, from my perspective, uh, this experience has been sort of one where, uh, you know, basically you have to sort of become an expert in resilience and you have to adapt or you're not going to make it. And so I was thinking about what you were saying about, do people get despondent about climate change? Are they losing hope? You know, for my, for my own part, uh, I like, just as I never lost hope about sort of, uh, you know, basically recovering from MS and not having it be a, a major obstacle to my life. Um, I also just haven't lost hope about climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just, um, so I think that, that, that um, basically people with disabilities become sort of self-advocates in all sorts of ways. And I think that those sort of, those self-advocacy and resilience skills, you know, you're navigating a world that's not, optimally designed for you um, could really be harnessed to to basically you know be involved in taking care of fighting climate change yeah. uh, I, re- I, I like I I was uh, I was very I was very pessimistic about climate change probably up until about a year ago and I have a renewed sense of optimism um, in the sense that in the sense that when I started seeing, when I started seeing governments all over the world implement um, implement uh, targets for getting uh, uh, combustible engines off the road, like just for like just from like a macro, just from like a macro sense of going, wow, this is like a this is a really big piece of like macro policy that is one of the first things that that like will affect just like a totally gigantic number of people. And going, hmm. Okay, well, maybe this is the the like the beginning of of that starting to happen more in climate change, getting more action. And and again, and from the cynical side of that, it's like, well, you know, it it took being able to prove that that electric cars could be a profitable thing. Like without without that being a profitable venture, then that would have never happened. Um, but it but it gave me it gave me hope that that governments were taking these gigantic this like gigantic leap mm-hmm. the shitty thing with that too is like you think about how it affects people with um disabilities or even like marginalized people in general it's like oh well the average cost of an electric car is higher than a combustible engine vehicle so right like, but like but when, like but the but the difference in the emissions is what what i think what we're talking about would is going to reduce, hopefully, the problems that cause the problems that we don't have answers for. Yeah, um, I'm interested, Sebastian. The uh, like when we talk about people who live with disabilities, we talk about a really broad range of people that are affected by um, a num are affected in a number of different ways. How do you factor in? Like when when you're looking to create like policy change and um, include these voices because there's so many voices, like how do you how do you synthesize those voices into like one message or do you have to approach it from a number of different ways? So there's this great book on um, design 
and inclusion. And the point of the book is basically you're never done designing a new product. Um, if you think you're done, then you've, you've failed. So, and the challenge is basically, you know, and this is not just about disability, but, you know, ideally, like you, when you design something, you want it to be used for, uh, by as many people as possible in a way that meets their needs. That's the goal of, of good design. And that's going to be something that's iterative and changes over time. So what you need are, you, you're not going to, the first time you, you design something, it's not going to be perfect. Uh, I mean, if you wait till it's perfect, then you'll just wait and someone else will probably launch it instead, right? So, so for the same thing for, 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 for policies or product, you need a mechanism that allows you to iteratively improve mm -hmm. as, as there's more feedback. I mean, hopefully you've consulted people uh, as, you know, as much as possible and tried to take into account their needs. But yeah, it's a diverse, we're a diverse bunch. I mean, we faced this, um, like we launched about like two years ago and we've learned so much about how to do accessible online events. And every time we learn something new, or, or in my teaching, every semester I learn something new about how I can do something different so that it's more accessible, or, or I discover that something I did for this reason uh, benefits someone else that I had not intended. Or, or, or uh, so, so yeah, it's just it has to be understood as an ongoing process, and you need those mechanisms in place to make that possible. Versus the idea of we now adopt the policy and we, you know, and now it's stuck and you need mm -hmm. to sort of go back to parliament to change things. So it's like mm -hmm. a different way of approaching policy making. It's kind of like software updates, you know, like yeah. you, you, know, <laughs> you, you, you make a software, you put it out there and then you realize that once you've rolled it out to the mass public, that there's all these bugs and mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't work for this person. Uh, you know, when this person does this thing, it doesn't work and blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then you go, okay, three weeks later, you release an update and you know, the pr there's new problems and you solve those and then, and they're just continually updating always the evolving. process. And in software, you can update every three If only infrastructure <laughs> yeah. could be updated at the same rate as software. Uh, Sebastian, uh, I got to say thanks, man. The, thanks for, thanks for uh, the work that you do and, and the conversation that you provided with us today. Uh, we're big fans of your work. And, and um, honestly, like I, 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 you know, I should probably wait to, to say this until we're, the, the recording's over, but, um, would, would honestly love to have you back on the show, uh, just to talk about your MS and, and your experience in living with that. Um, uh, before we wrap, do you guys want to hear something, uh, that, that made me laugh that, uh, you might also find kind of, uh, amusing? Uh, yeah. You've, you've um, <laughs> so, so I have a problem with, I've, I, I'm not a very good note taker. Um, and that's something that, that, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to, maybe that's my new year's resolution is to take better notes. Um, and Sebastian, I have a, I have a, a doc here that is, uh, the show notes for your episode that has been sitting in my, um, in our Google drive since November, um, when we originally planned to, uh, to have you on the show. And, uh, I've got all these notes of things that we were going to talk about today and, and, uh, I can tell because of my shitty note taking that I saw something probably on Reddit, maybe Twitter, which is where I get most of the information <laughs> that I bring to the show, um, that I just wrote down Walker don't shortage. Tell, don't tell people that, Jeremy. Um, and, uh, I was like, oh yeah, we should definitely like bring up the, I should definitely do some research into the Walker shortage and, and bring that up with, with Sebastian. <laughs> and so of course I, you know, open the document and I see it there and I go, oh, I never looked into that. So I, I quickly was Googling it while we were having the conversation. Um, and, uh, uh, 
clearly I, I didn't really read into Walker shortage because I was thinking Walker shortage as in the Walker that like maybe someone like yourself might need to use Sebastian, like, you know, with, with MS and, and having uh, disability issues. Uh, the Walker shortage was actually a shortage of Walker crisps in, uh, which is a certain type of chips in, in the UK has nothing to do with this conversation whatsoever. Uh, so anyway, I'm uh, well, going to take better notes there. If you want, you know, maybe like there's potato crops that have failed because of climate change. And yes, there we that's go. caused some kind of shortage in potatoes to make crisps. The disability connection, though, is more tenuous. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would say so. Uh, Sebastian, thanks. Thanks so much. Really, re- truly a, a pleasure to have you on the show. How can people um, How can people find the work that you are doing with this Disability Inclusive Climate Change Action Research Program? Yeah, so we have a website. It's called uh, disabilityinclusiveclimate.org. And uh, we're very always very happy to have people contact us and um, you know, work with people in all sorts of ways. Um, so, yeah, people can find us there, find the resources, and, and get in touch with us. Cool. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great day. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.